Do we have liftoff? There we go. All right. Just a reminder, Chafer Conference is coming up in about a, a, a month, almost exactly four weeks from four weeks from now, March 7th through 9th. And so we need lots of volunteers. One thing you need to volunteer for is to make cookies. And we have about 60 dozen we need. I know somebody uh, texted me this week and said, would I please sign her up for six dozen? So we need 54 more dozen. Barb, that's you, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. And we need, um, uh, so if you want to help out in the kitchen with cleanup, registration, or transportation, please go to deanbibleministries.org and register for the conference as a conference volunteer and indicate the area in which you would like to volunteer. Also, we will have some guest speakers over the next two or th- two weeks or so. Uh, Dr. Wayne House and Dr. Doug Petrovich uh, will be filling in, and the schedule was in the February calendar on the bulletin, which is also on the westhoustonbiblechurch.org website. And that is all we have for announcements. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness." Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever." Before we get started this evening, we will take a few moments so we can make sure we're walking by the Holy Spirit and not according to our sin nature. And if we have slipped off the rails and need to get back, we need to confess sin, which simply means to admit or acknowledge our sin. And instantly God uh, forgives us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So we'll have a few moments for silent prayer. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so very grateful that we have an intimate relationship with you, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, being filled by the Spirit with your Word, uh, coming to understand who you are and all that you've provided for us. And we pray that our uh, minds would just overflow with gratitude for all that you have given us. And Father, we thank you that you identify for us our purpose in life, that you tell us what these distinctions are between men and women, between adults and children. Father, we are thankful that we are not lost as those in the world are, seeking some sort of meaning out of nothingness, trying somehow to 
deal with the confusion in their deep in their own souls and father that that you have uh, given us insight into your word and we pray that as we seek to give the gospel explain the gospel explain the scriptures that there will be those who will respond positively uh, we do not think that we are somehow better than others because we have believed in Christ but that we have received your grace and that humbles us father help us as we study tonight as we continue this study on sexual roles and gender confusion that you would help us to see what has happened within our culture and we pray these things in Christ's name amen all right we're going to go back to uh first corinthians uh, this morning I mean, this evening, just a little bit. I just want to go back and point out a couple of things. But um, for any who may be jumping in on this study in the middle of where we are, this is our series on Judges. We worked our way verse by verse up through chapter 5. But chapter 4 and 5 raise a question about the role of women. It's often used, as I've pointed out in my introductions over the past seven or eight lessons, that when you start to talk about the passages that we talked about last week in 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 15, and tonight in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 8, 8 through 13, that, that the first objection from the feminist uh, left, from those who theologically are liberal and are politically liberal, is that that, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, God lets Deborah do it, and she's praised in the, in the New Testament, so this is a big contradiction in Scripture. Actually, it's not, but we have to understand what the Scripture actually says and what it teaches. Deborah was a prophetess and a judge. The passages in the New Testament do not address women in either of those roles because they are not functional in the church today. It addresses the role of the teacher and the leader in, in the church. The problem with the period of the judges is the problem we have now. It is a problem with authority. It is a problem that people don't want someone telling them what to do. People don't want them telling them that they can't do something, that that's not how God designed them. And so there is a, a, an inner rebelliousness that is part of our sin nature. We all have it. And this is what was happening in Israel. They abandoned God, as it is said many times in Judges chapter 2. They abandoned God and they sold themselves, using a word that can also be applied to being sold into slavery, they sold themselves to the worship of creation, the, the so-called nature gods, the fertility gods. Now, we're, we're doing the same thing today. We don't have idols of wood and, and gold and silver. We have idols of the mind, and we've created uh, the universe. We've seen the universe out there, and we're worshiping that creation, denying its God, and we're, we, we've rejected God, and so all that we have is, is the universe, and we've turned that into our God. And that's the essence of what monism is. 
And uh, uh, what happens is the same thing that happened in the judges. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and it destroyed their culture. It destroyed their civilization. It destroyed their individual spiritual lives. It destroyed any sense of hope or stability. And, and it goes from bad to worse from chapter to chapter in the book of Judges. Romans one twenty five, Paul identifies this. The Romans exemplified it in their civilization. They were pagan monists. They worshipped the creation and the nature gods, the fertility gods. They had exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and they worshipped and served, and that word has to do serving in a worshipful manner, the creation rather than the creator. And that's exactly what we have, whether we're talking about climate change, whether we're talking about areas of dealing with and preserving Mother Earth. And and, uh, frankly, there are those. uh, Bill Gates is one of them. He said this in a speech. There are others, and they just see that the Earth has a virus, and the virus is the human race. And we've got to do something to minimize the human race. And that's because they're worshiping pagan gods. They're just idolaters. You have this chain of being that actually fits every system other than the creator-creature distinction of the Scripture. Everything is part of God. Everything is part of some deity. They've deified the impersonal universe. And this goes back to an ancient idea called the chain of being, where the so-called God, in quotations, has has the uh, greatest level of being or essence, and inanimate objects have the lowest level, but they all have something of God in them. And that view is called monism. It's, it's the dominant, the most extreme forms that we see are in Hinduism and Buddhism and Eastern religions, but they're really there in all of these other forms. And it's just cloaked with pseudo, or with modern scientific names. But biblical Christianity stands against it completely. With God as the personal, infant God, he is personal. You do not have a personal creation. You you can't have personal matter. It's impersonal, so there's no person there. There's no will. There's no intellect. People say, well, the intellect, I mean, the the universe uh, smiled on me today. Well, the universe can't smile. The universe has no intellect, no emotion. The intellect is just, I mean, the the, uh, universe is just immaterial matter. Um, It's insanity. It's irrational. Uh, We have a personal God who is also infinite, the creator of all things. And he is set apart. That's that black line. He is totally set apart from the Uh, Man, from the human beings, he created in his image, but they are separate and distinct from animals, vegetation, matter, and energy. On the right side, you see the human viewpoint, pagan worldview in that circle. That circle comprises all things. They're all within the same circle, participating in the same essence, God, man, and nature. And that's the essence of the yin-yang symbol that that, that depicts this monism. So we've been looking at what the Bible teaches about the about the role of men and women because in monism it obliterates those distinctions. And within monism, and I've read you several quotes over time, and I could read more and more, but it's just disgusting. 
that that basically pagan monism glorifies transsexuality, uh, homosexuality, all sorts of sexual uh, sexual perversion. This is all a result, of course, of this of the curse. But it has an impact on the way men and women relate to each other. And he goes back to what we learned in Genesis 1, 26 and 28. And that is that God created the human race. He created them male and female. And that they are created, male and female are created in the image of God. The second chapter describes how that creation took place, that God first created the man, and then he took from his side, uh, uh, basically it's usually translated a rib, but it has that idea of just the side. He takes from the, uh, a rib from the side of, the, of Adam, the man, and he creates a woman to be a counterpart to him, to complement him. That's C-O-M-P-E, complement. L-E-M-E-N-T, C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T, not I-M-E-N-T, to, to be his helper, to be his counterpart. But there, is a, there are role distinctions. God gave Adam the responsibility to rule over creation, to subdue creation, and she is to help him. So that as they grow together in a marriage, they are able to fully enjoy this, but something happened, and it was called sin. It's a violation of God's mandate not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Romans, I mean Genesis one twenty six to twenty eight tells us that they're equal in their essence, in who they are, in their soul worth and value, but it doesn't mean they're interchangeable. And the idea of interchangeability basically obliterates these distinctions that God made they, between male and female. They're obviously physically not interchangeable, but we have surgeons who think they're God who can redo the process. That there are real differences that aren't just limited to the obvious sexual uh, organ differences, but that, that, that impacts so many other areas. And in Genesis 3, we learned that that because of this of sin, that this had has specific tendencies to, uh, of, of women, and specific tendencies of men. Women would because of the sin itself, she did not stay under the authority of her husband, but she violated that authority, and now this is going to be the general trend and problem for women is their desire to dominate the men. And the men are going to dominate back. And so this creates a terrible conflict. And I think one of the forms in which it is portrayed in its most evil is in the religion of Islam and the way that women are treated as something less, much less than than a slave or even an animal. We went to 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16 to demonstrate that when that Paul clearly teaches this and explains this, that there are certain signs of that relationship. And we'll look at something in just a minute, but that that's evidenced by the fact that the man in worship does not wear a covering or a hat or a veil or a shawl or something like that over his head, but the woman does. She, uh, she has her hair for a shawl-like covering, and it's clear that what he's talking about is hairstyles. 
And then we'll spend most of the time tonight looking at 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. So we always have to remember when we look at what's going on in the world around us that because of sin, life is corrupted, our thinking is corrupted, our emotions are corrupted, our souls are corrupted, our desires are corrupted, our relationships are corrupted, uh, our responsibilities, everything in life is corrupted and corroded. And we have something inside of us. We know it's wrong. We know it shouldn't be this way. And that's just something that God has put within us so that it reminds us or ought to be a, a wake-up call that, that if I think it ought to be better, and look, that's, that's a point of co- contact with all of these um, people today who want to have social justice and all of these other things, that they're looking in the, all the wrong places for social justice they have to get right with God. That that sense of justice that's corroded and corrupted in their soul is because they were created in the image and likeness of God. It's a good desire to want justice. But when you add social and other concepts, adjectives in front of it, you destroy justice because now you're going to use some human viewpoint reference as what justice is instead of God, which is the only justice. Everything is corroded by sin, but that doesn't remove God's design for the roles and functions within his, of, of human beings within his plan. That male and female have distinct roles, distinct abilities. He's designed them specifically in terms of their biology, their structure, their makeup uh, to function in a certain way. But they're still equal before God. And they're designed for these different roles and functions. But sin corrupts our understanding and it corrupts our biology. And that helps understand why some people, I don't know all the dynamics. I don't think any of us can because as far as I've been able to read and understand, before we really become volitionally conscious, we make a lot of decisions. I didn't say before before we become volitionally active, but before we really become volitionally conscious, which is much later, we have already made a lot of sinful decisions because that's the only way we can as a spiritually dead person who's six months old, eight months old, uh, a year old, three years old, four years old, five years old, we make lots of bad decisions, every one of us. And some people make some bad decisions that I think somehow shape them in a certain direction. And this comes back to really bite them later on if it isn't corrected by the Word of God. And they just continue down that path, and that bent twig becomes a bent tree. And the older it gets, the more difficult it is to straighten it out. And paganism is one facet of that, and it seeks to redefine everything that God has done, and especially the meaning of male and female. So we looked at 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16, saw that the basic interpretive problem there was, is Paul talking about a hair as a covering, or is he talking about a physical covering like a hat or a shawl? And the other basic question that applies to this passage as well as the First Timothy passage, is this something that's unique to the culture of Corinth 
or is this something that is really dealing with a universal principle? So you had three groups I mentioned. You had one group who just, oh, we're, we're all free in Christ, and they just as let, the, let their hair down. That's where that phrase came from. It really became an idiom for just removing all restraint. Then you had another group of women who didn't wear physical veils or shawls or a some sort of a handkerchief or something over their head, but they wore up their hair up in a bun or in folded braids in some sort of hairstyle, and that that you did not see her hair, which is the the part of the glory and the beauty of a woman and her attractiveness. But then when a woman is married and she undoes all undoes all of that and her hair comes down letting her hair down that is for that time of intimacy with her husband and then there were those who who wore a physical cover now we looked at women in veils in the old testament we looked at the fact that the assyrians had laws like eastern and this is sort of a precursor to the way islam did it the veil signified that the woman was owned and was the prop, had had uh, the husband had proprietary rights over the woman but that doesn't inform the scriptures that islamic customs which are much later after the new testament that doesn't inform the Christ, the, the the scriptures and then I made the point that in class, the classical Greek period and in the Roman period, you don't find that uh, women are wearing shawls or veils or head coverings, physical head coverings, in either the Greek or the Roman culture. But I didn't have time to give you some show and tell. So I just went out. You can find a lot more. I chose the ones that were more modest because, as you know, in a lot of Greek sculpture, the women are not dressed, and the men don't have much on, if anything. So here we have these these four statues, and notice the women have their hair pulled back in a modest fashion, but there's no shawl, there's no veil, there's no physical head covering. We see that there is some sort of a headband in both of these uh, statues, but there's a certain hairstyle that is part of the identity of a woman. And on on the urns, we also see this. On the, the urns, you see the woman has her hair in a bun over on the one on the left, and these uh, ladies have different different hairstyles. Some of them have their hair decorated with, with uh, some sort of scarf or something, but it's not covering the hair. It is just used to uh, hold the hair in place or tie the hair like a headband. And then we have these other uh, p- portrayals here. The hair is longer, but it's still tied up. So it gives us that idea. You don't see that the norm in a Greek culture was a physical sort of covering. So now we're going to come to 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. This is really the benchmark passage, central passage, on the fact that God has specific roles for men and women in worship. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, talked about the fact that women could pray and prophesy in the early church, when the gift of prophecy was was available, 
but they did it under certain guidelines. They were to have uh, a covering, which was their hair. Men, on the other hand, were not to pray or prophesy with their head covered. And if that, and I believe it does, relate to hair for the reasons I gave last time, then that meant men generally, and this was a hairstyle we can see on many, uh, uh, any, many pictures, portraits of men at that time was a short hairstyle. But this passage is the one that prohibits women preachers. Now, in 1 Corinthians 11, when it talks about women praying or prophesying, you get people coming out of certain denominations. And mostly these are Baptists that I have heard. And they play, they have a terrible ability to get even close to the meaning of most of the spiritual gifts. And when it comes to prophecy, because they have a cultural view of what preaching is, they don't have a biblical view of preaching. And a lot, and a lot of us have picked that up. Preaching is not a rhetorical form in the Bible. It has become a rhetorical form in culture. Three points in a poem is often the way it's expressed. Some men can do it well and can actually include a lot of exposition in it, and a lot of most of them cannot do it well. And what I hear mostly is ways in which they can insert their opinion. It's difficult to do preaching of that style when you're going verse by verse. You have to be pretty creative. Some are adept at doing that. Most are not. And what most do when they preach is they do topical preaching, which means they basically get their sermon outlined in their head, and then they go find a passage that can fit it, and they're basically preaching more their own opinions than they are explaining or expositing the Word of God. When you find the word in Scripture, Caruso, from the noun Carux. A Carux was a herald. A herald was sent out by the king. They did not have Twitter. They did not have Instagram. They did not have Facebook or any other form of social media. They didn't have PA systems. They didn't have telephones or telegraphs. All they could do is send out a messenger, one who proclaimed the message, the Carux. And he went from town to village to town to village, and he would walk in and go block by block and announce his message. He did not discuss his message. He did not take questions and answers. He did not uh, look around to make sure that people were paying attention and being entertained by him. His role was simply to announce the message. And that was called preaching, proclamation, Caruso. Most of the time in the New Testament, the content of a of Caruso is the gospel. It's not the Christian life. It's the gospel. It's how to be saved. Jesus Christ died for your sins. Believe on him and you'll be saved. That's the message. That's the announcement. But what we have today is preachers want to do all this other stuff that doesn't either edify or build up. In some cases, I know there are some who do. They entertain a lot, I'll tell you that. 
but they don't give depth of content because they have confused an an oratorical style or a rhetorical style with what the Bible teaches. The emphasis in the scripture, it comes from the word didasko, the Greek word didasko, which means teaching. I teach in that, that particular form. Didasko is teaching, instructing, explaining, uh, identifying, defining. It's what I attempt to do from this pulpit is to teach. And what hap- has happened as such a horrific way of defining terms is because a lot of pastors and a lot of people are not scholars on the spiritual gifts and they've been too influenced by holiness theology and Pentecostal theology and backwoods theology. But prophecy is not is is being a communicator of divine revelation that God reveals a message to the prophet and the prophet then presents the message that God has revealed. They don't add to it, they don't take away from it, they don't explain it, they don't teach it. They just give the message that God gave to them. It is not preaching. And so what happens in these congregations and denominations that are vague and confused on their definitions is that they say, well, preaching is prophesying. No, it isn't. Preaching is not prophesying. And so women could prophesy so women can preach. No, they can't. And you can't either. Because you can't rightly divide the word of God, so you need to go back to first grade and get a decent education at some conservative school. And then maybe when you're 15 or 16, you can start learning Greek and Hebrew. And after you've spent about eight years learning Greek and Hebrew, you can go to seminary. And then maybe when you come out, you can teach the word of God instead of this mush that you put out there, which entertains, but it doesn't edify. And that's a horrible thing because now what we have is a lot of women preachers. I thought when I started to go to, was being prepared to go to seminary, I, I was in a group of two or three uh, young men who were planning on going to seminary. I think I'm the only one who did end up going to Dallas. And our, the pastor warned us that you're going to see some problems here because the federal government is coming in, and in order to get VA loans and any kind of federal um, uh, federal financing, you're going to have to go along with equal rights, and that makes men and women equal. And you're going to have to have they're going to force the schools to admit women into seminaries, they're going to have to change their purpose statements, which is what Dallas Seminary did around 1980 or 81, and they're going to admit women uh, into these programs, and even though Dallas claims that they don't have them in the preaching courses, it changes. I had several students uh, back at, back in the 80s told me it changes the whole dynamic in the classroom. You know, there was one lady who said, okay, well, this is all fine and good as we've gone through the doctrine of justification but, but, you know, how's that supposed to make me feel? It just changes the whole focus of the classroom. 
Now, I have no problem with women being educated theologically. I think that's important. Men and women need to learn the word. And and nobody is saying that. Nobody who's trying to be biblical says that because the Bible doesn't say that. In fact, as we're going to see in this passage, that Paul says women are supposed to learn, but under certain qualifications, which apply to men as well. But he emphasized it for women because maybe that was a particular issue. So the passage we have, core passage, reads like this. I'm going to go through these these verses. Paul says, I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And the word for men is males. I desire, therefore, that the males pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. In like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission. And that should be translated not in silence because it's not absolute silence, and that's not what the text is really getting at, as we'll see. Let a woman learn quietly. In other words, don't ask questions of the pastor while he's teaching. Let him teach. Don't interrupt. And apparently this was a problem, you know, like he's saying with men. Men were not walking in, stepping into their leadership roles, so they weren't leading the congregation in prayer like they should. And it, there was a problem because there were women who were interrupting or something like that. So that's all he's getting at there is there should be propriety in, uh, in learning. But notice he says, let them learn. Don't leave that out. And then he says, but I don't permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, but to be in silence or to be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and with self-control. All right, let's learn a little bit about the context here. The context here is the pastoral epistles. These are three epistles that Paul wrote after the end of the book of Acts. When the book of Acts ends, Paul is in prison in Rome. That is his first imprisonment. And if you ever sit under a liberal Bible teacher, they will tell you that that was the only imprisonment. And so we don't know who really wrote First, Second Timothy or Titus. But it's pretty clear uh, because of some things that are said here that, that Paul was released and he came back for a second imprisonment. I, when I was a senior in college, I, the, they had, the Methodist had a Methodist student union and a Baptist had a Baptist student union. And I thought I'd take a course at the Baptist student union that they might get it right. They didn't. And he was somewhat liberal and he took a single imprisonment view, and so I had to work through a lot of stuff. But he was objective enough on papers that even if you didn't agree with him, if you argued well, he would still give you an A. That's how a good professor is. You don't have to agree with him, but you have to argue your position well. So these are written after Paul's first imprisonment, 
These are two of several men that traveled with Paul and were trained by Paul. And during that period of time, he sent them to specific churches as pastors. And so he is writing these epistles in order to explain um, things about the function, the organization, and the mission of the local of the local church. First of all, they address the role and qualifications for local church leaders. And they talk about how they're qualified. How that relates is because uh, the bishop, the episkopos in 1 Timothy 3, is to be the husband of one wife. It's very clear using those terms that he is a man. He's the husband of one wife, a woman who is a bishop, can't be the husband of one wife. So liberals just say, oh, that's just that patriarchal sexist nonsense, and they just take their razor blade out and get rid of it or write something else else in. Second, they address specific issues related to responsibilities of local churches, and one of the big issues in 1 Timothy has to do with false teachers and correcting false teachers, correcting the false teaching, and kicking the false teachers out of the church. Also, they emphasize certain priorities for the worship in the local church and just for the Christian life of those within the church, which leads us to the fourth point. They address issues that are important for the spiritual growth of all believers, not just talking about pastors and the the leaders of these local churches. So that's the context of the pastoral epistles. Furthermore, in terms of the time context, Paul's first imprisonment ended around A.D. 62, and he dies somewhere around 67. So these pastoral epistles are written between 63 and 67. He wrote 1 Timothy to counteract. Oh, excuse me, I'm skipping ahead there. So that's that's when he wrote these towards the end, end of his life. Timothy is a pastor in Ephesus, and Titus is a pastor in Crete. It's interesting. Ephesus had some great pastors. They had Paul was there for two years. Uh, He left Timothy there for a while. Apollos was there for a while. Later, the apostle John is there for a while. And all of these men came and went. And you didn't have any of them say things like, We can't listen to Timothy because our right pastor is Paul. Or we can't listen to John because our right pastor is Apollos. You didn't hear any of that nonsense. There was a recognition that this man was the pastor of the church and he taught and you were to follow his teaching and and leadership. So Paul writes Timothy to confront and refute the false teaching that was beginning to have a negative impact on the church. Now, the reason I bring that out is when you get into looking at at 1 Timothy 2, uh, down at verse 8, there are those of the liberal feminist persuasion today that want to say, oh, he's just talking about the women who were influenced by these false teachers. No, he's not. He's not qualifying it in terms of the fact that they've been seduced by false doctrine or anything else. He's laying down universal principles. He's not relating it to that specific problem. 
But he does recognize that there are role distinctions within the congregation for the men and for the women. And what's important also to understand is that within the history of Christianity, 1 Timothy 2 has been universally and traditionally taught the same way for about 1,900 years until we had a major worldview shift in Western Christianity, which brought in very subtly very pagan views on the roles of men and women, which were contrary to the scriptures. And they sat in judgment. Based on that worldview, they sat in judgment on the scriptures and said, well, this doesn't fit with our worldview. This is the way we think it ought to be, and so we have to reject this as part of the scripture. Paul couldn't have written this. Or, as I was told um, uh, by by one lady many years ago who went to Highland Park Methodist, is Paul hated women. We can't listen to him about women. Paul was a misogynist. And they deeply, profoundly believe that because that is what their Sunday school teachers have taught them and their pastors have taught them, and that they don't have to pay attention to those verses. And it, it's it's really sad. The term I used earlier to describe the position that I'm teaching and the one that I know most of you hold to is called the complementarian position. And what that means is they believe the, the woman was created to aid and assist the man. She is not lower than the man or higher than the man. She is there at his side to help him accomplish what God has called him to accomplish. And so she is to complement him in his mission. That's the biblical view. That's the divine viewpoint view. That's the view where the creator defines the roles of male and female. But the modern feminist liberal position is called the egalitarian position, which sounds so democratic, doesn't it? They, but the egalitarian, related to the word equal, is this idea that men and women are so equal that they're totally interchangeable, and if a man can be a pastor, a woman can be a pastor. But that goes back to that monistic view that I explained to you that what that does, it just destroys the barriers. And so that a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man or any number of other genders, which is where we are today. The human viewpoint of our culture has become increasingly anti-authority and anti-scriptural. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Our culture has progressed I use that word, that's their word. It goes back to, you can find it used to describe liberalism in its incipient form in the early 1900s among the transcendentalists and among some of the others, especially in New England, the Unitarians. Uh, they had adopted a post-millennial view that, that the church would bring in uh, would bring in this utopic kingdom, and that kingdom became less and less the kingdom of Christ and more and more some Western civilization kingdom, and that this kingdom that they became also became more and more identified with the destiny of America. And so America needed to get rid of all of these social sins 
That's the root of the social gospel and social justice movements. Going back to the 1820s, let's get rid of these social sins and we can bring in a perfect society. And it's going to start with getting rid of slavery. I'm not saying that slavery was a good thing, but their motivation is pure arrogance. England did it on a biblical basis and you didn't have a civil war. America did it on the basis of arrogance and rejection of God and look what it did. We're still suffering the consequences from their arrogance. And so then by the time you introduce Darwin and everybody on the planet, every human being is just an accident because of some uh, unexpected electrical discharge in a pool of slime that now we have everybody who developed from that, so they have to all be equal and the same. That's the human viewpoint position. It's just paganism. There are many different facets to paganism, as I've taught for many years, many different facets to human viewpoint, but it all boils down to the same monistic view. So our culture has progressed, actually regressed, based on these utopic ideas of religious and philosophical utopianism, which denies God as the creator and authority over his creation and have replaced God, the almighty creator, triune creator God, with the worship of the creature and inanimate creation. And their view is that anything that is in the Bible is essentially it's just restrictive. God just doesn't want you to find your true potential so you don't have to, ladies, you don't have to listen to what that, that, that misogynistic Paul said because that's not really what God wants. He wants you to be equal uh, with every man. You are equal with every man. You, just because we have different roles doesn't Can you imagine football players, one day they come to practice, they say, the tight end says, I'm going to be quarterback today because that's what I feel like. I'm going to be the quarterback and the running back says, well, you know, I'm going to be a blocker, and he's going to be knocked on his butt every time. And the guy who plays center, who's usually a square, solid guy who can hold the line, well, he says, I'm going to be, I'm going to be a runner. No, you're not. That's insanity, but that's where we are. Those who hold to the traditional biblical view are seen as narrow-minded and oppressive, contentious, and abusive. By definition, you're just patriarchal. You hate women because you believe the Bible. So that's, that's what we have to deal with, with grace and gentleness. Often what we find is the argument that they set forth, it follows this basic syllogism. There are other arguments, but this is one of the more popular structures. They say, well, Paul wrote 1 Timothy to counteract a specific situation in the life of the church. Then their minor premise is nothing written for a specific situation in the first century is normative for the church today. Therefore, what they conclude is 1 Timothy contains no directives for the church today. The reality is, on the basis of their minor premise, nothing in the Bible applies to anything today because everything in the New Testament was written to address certain problems and difficulties in the early church that are the same kind of problems and difficulties that we run into 
generation after generation, country after country, continent after continent, century after century. And so uh, they do, Timothy does contain directives for today. Now, the context really begins back in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2. And this is important. What Paul is talking to them about is prayer. That's his introduction. And then, as happens so often with Paul, he goes on a divine rabbit trail. But then, by verse 8, he comes back. He starts off and he says, Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And the word there is the word on the lower left, anthropos, which is a word, and it can refer to male as opposed to female, but more often it refers to mankind or the human race, everyone. Prayers and giving of thanks should be made for everyone. For, and now he's going to specify different categories and groups, kings and all who are in authority. The word for authority here has the idea of more they're, they're preeminent in the culture, they are uh, a dignified. It's a different word for authority that's used when you get down into verse 12. The word for authority there is only used in verse 12 in the New Testament and nowhere else in the New Testament. So we're to pray for, for all who are in authority. And I, I see this verse as being significant and applicable to our understanding of why Christians should be involved in politics. If you're going to pray that's, that somebody would just come and cut my grass, sooner or later you realize you have to get up and put gas in the mower and pull and start it and go out and cut the grass. And when we're going to pray that we have a government that will enable us to live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence, when we have the kind of constitution and government that we have, we need to not only be praying, but we need to be investigating who's running for office, and we need to be voting, especially in the primaries. And we've got a primary coming up in about a month. And on March the 1st, there's going to be uh, the, the primary vote. And so it's important. There are some critical elections that are going on right now, and there are the, the Harris County, uh, the, the people who run Harris County and the Harris County judge is just a joke. I'm not saying there aren't Republicans that are jokes because there are. We've got to have somebody with integrity and who really knows how to organize and, and run a government that allows people to have freedom and not mandate things like, like Hidalgo has done. So we need to have people in office who are going to leave the church alone. That's the First Amendment. And we learned in COVID that there are a lot of people in politics that they've been hiding something from us, that they hate the church and they want to restrict the church from doing what Christians are to do, and that is to have a voice in the marketplace. And so we have to be involved in that. It's good, it's important, and the priority is prayer. But in this nation, we also have a responsibility to go and vote for people who will do that. And, and it's so funny because so many Christians that I, I have run into, they pray for that, and then they go vote for the person who's going to do just the opposite. They're spiritually blind because they've never been taught any doctrine. 
So we are to pray for those in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in godliness and reverence. So Paul's t- these terms, godliness or reverence, refer to people who are positive to doctrine and who are spiritually growing toward maturity. That's the sense there, the godliness is that they are growing towards spiritual maturity. That's the idea. And reverence is that they are serious about it. You know, this is significant in their, in their life. Now, in verses 3 and 4, we see that Paul goes on to say, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. It's an explanation. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, to pray for leaders who will let you live a godly, reverent life and leave you alone. And when he says God our Savior, now he feels the need to explain what that means and that God desires all men to be saved. And here it's all men, anthropos again. He's not saying all males. He's not a misogynist. That all men, all mankind, all human beings, God desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Not a truth, not the truth that works for you, but the truth. And that at least refers to Jesus who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. And then he explains that a little more and says, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men. You don't have a mediatrix named Mary. You only have a mediator who is a male, and he is the man Christ Jesus, Anthropos. So he emphasizing the humanity of Christ. And then we have a short statement explaining substitutionary atonement. He gave himself a ransom to pay a price. He is paying the price for all, not for some, for all, not the Calvinistic doctrine of limited atonement that Christ died only for those who were the elect. He paid a ransom for all to be testified in due time. In verse 7 he says, for which, that is for that gospel, that testimony, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. He is to proclaim that gospel. And an apostle, I'm speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. And then he says, a teacher. So see, you can be a preacher and a teacher And the preacher is proclaiming, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And the teacher explains what that means and takes questions and answers. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Then he comes to the key part that we're looking at. Therefore, conclusion, because of what Christ did on the cross, that's the therefore. Why is the therefore there? It is there to explain more and draw the conclusions of what he has said before, which takes us back to this statement about God's desire for all men to be saved. And there's one God and one mediator who gave himself as a ransom price, as a payment for us. And for that, he was appointed a preacher and an apostle to speak the truth, a teacher of faith and truth. Therefore, 
as a result of that, because we have a God who is a God of order, I want, and he changes the word here to aner. Anthropos is mankind, all humanity. But now he's, he's pointing at the men. Because males have a tendency, women have a tendency to want to dominate. Men have a tendency to, oh, go ahead, you lead. I'm tired of leading. You be the boss. That's a wrong trend on both sides. And so it happens in the church. You have men, historically, going back to the second century, the church attendance in churches has been primarily women. Two to one, three to one, four to one. Men were too good for it. Men abdicated their positions of spiritual leadership in the home. So, and if it's abdicated in the home, it'll be abdicated in the church. So Paul says, I want the males in every place to pray. It's not just praying, but he's talking about spiritual leadership. And he says, I want the males in every place uh, to in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands. Now, one thing I want to talk about here is in every place, he's talking about churches and the places where Christians gather to meet, to learn the word of God and to worship God. He's not talking about um, the morning men in every cafeteria to pray or in every restaurant, or in every bank, or in every grocery store to pray. He's talking about at the place where Christians gather for the purpose of worship. And that's going to be the context that runs all the way through this, that when it talks about not allowing women to teach, it's not saying that that women can't teach their kids or that women can't sit around the, the coffee table at home with two or three other couples and maybe one of the ladies knows more about the word than anybody else and that she can help explain and answer questions and do stuff like that. That's not what the word means. We'll get to the details there, but the word to teach is talking about the formal, specific teaching ministry in the local church. Now, today we have parachurch ministries. It would apply to most parachurch ministries, too. But but in the in informal settings where you're out to lunch after church and you're work you know you're talking about the message and trying to figure things out that doesn't mean women are to keep their keep quiet you're not in the right context anymore. So he wants the men in every place that is every place of the meeting of the church whether it's in a home or whether it's in a school like the school of Tyrannus in, in Ephesus or some other place and. It's not referring to just any place, but those places for worship. And they are to lift up holy hands. And that's not the word hagias, but it's a synonym. It's hosias, which means sanctified and pure. And this is teaching an important principle that to pray, you have to have your sins cleansed. You have to have your sins forgiven. Uh, In the Old Testament, when the priest was first inaugurated, He was immersed in water. It's a complete washing and cleansing. Different words are used for a complete washing as opposed to a partial washing. But then when he came in, and it's different words in the Greek because they understood that it was different. Uh, The Hebrew had the same word, just one word for everything. 
but the translators of the Septuagint understood that at his inauguration it was a bath, and later on he just washed his hands and washed his feet. There's a symbolism there. I have gone to unclean places, and I've done unclean things and gone to unclean places. I've committed sin. And the symbolism of the washing of the hands and the washing of the feet was the symbolism of of uh, forgiveness of sin and being cleansed of sin. And so when Paul says lift up holy hands, the emphasis isn't on lifting up your hands, that somehow that makes it a more efficacious prayer. The emphasis is on when you pray, you need to have been sanctified by confession of sin. And in the ancient world among the Jews, the manner in which you prayed was to lift your hands. That was more of their culture, but that's typically not our culture. But you'll find some Christians who've adopted that because they think it's more holy, and they've missed the whole point of the passage. It's, we're to be set apart, sanctified. You have to confess sins and be walking by the Spirit. And the negative is, without wrath or dissension, you've cleansed yourself from sin, and you're going to get rid of that sinful mental attitude, and you're going to be walking by the Spirit. James says this very closely the same thing in James 4, 8 through 10. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Wow, that's great. How do I draw near to God? Well, what separates us from God is sin. In Psalm 66, 18, the psalmist said, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. So I have to, what does he say? Cleanse your hands, you sinner. This is why the important word in 1 John 1, 9 is not confess. The important word is cleansing and forgiveness. Because those are the words we find over and over and over again in in the New Testament. And 1 John 1, 9, you, you know, something only has to be said once in the New Testament for it to be true. God doesn't have to say it three or four times. Oh, well, God only said that once, so it's not that important. It says it once, and that's it. He doesn't need to say it on every other page. So James says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. He's borrowing from that Old Testament illustration. James is the first epistle written in the New Testament. James writes from a very Jewish background. Uh, This is uh, James, who is the uh, half-brother, as it were, of the Lord Jesus Christ, the brother of his humanity. And James is, is the leader in the church. And when he talks about the church earlier, it's really they're still meeting with the synagogues. Actually, there were Jews and Christians who met together in synagogues on Saturday and synagogues on Sunday, and it was Jewish Saturday and Jew- and Christian on Sunday up till the middle of the second century that was still going on in some places. So here it's before any of the pastorals are written. It's before anything teaching is out there on the spiritual gifts or any of that. This is the first thing written, and he's talking about basically confession of sin. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Make your hearts pure, you double-minded. That goes back to the uh, James 1.8 when double-minded was it. You don't answer your prayers because you're two-souled, literally. You're a psychotic Christian, you're, 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 you say you want to do one thing and you're still doing something else like Paul in Romans 7. The problem was arrogance. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It takes humility to admit your sins to the Lord. 
and that's the that's when you make that turn and quit walking according to the sin nature and walking by the Holy Spirit. So in two eight, after Paul says the men are supposed to be prayer, they're the spiritual leaders of the congregation. They need to make sure that they're walking by the Spirit, they're cleansed of their sins, and they're not angry and disputing and all of those things. But now he's going to talk about women and a problem that they have. The first is how some of them were dressing. And he says, likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. That's the New King James Version. The Greek is prepo. That's not preppy. That's prepo. It's Greek, and it means that which is appropriate to the occasion. So he's not talking about the fact that you can't dress nice or somewhat stylishly, but it it needs to be appropriate to the occasion. You know, if you're going to go to the beach, you're going to wear clothing that's appropriate to the occasion. If you're going to go to a football game, you're going to wear clothing that's appropriate to the occasion. If you're going to go to a picnic and play volleyball and all that in August heat of Houston, you're going to dress appropriately. But if you're going to go to church where you're worshiping the Lord, then you're going to dress appropriately, not in a way that is distracting in any way, shape, or form. When I first went to seminary back back in the 70s, there was a large, uh, large Bible church pastored by one of the professors from Dallas Seminary, well-respected professor, a good church, good teaching church, and the... But it was just north, just outside of an area of Dallas known as Highland Park. If you're not if you're not familiar with Dallas, Highland Park is like River Oaks. And one of the comments I heard from a, another seminary student, because we were all first year, and so we're all going to different churches, and they had gone to this church a couple of times and said, "That is just a fashion show every single Sunday." Now, I don't know where this guy came from, and he could have come from some, uh, you know, small, small town in Ohio or Pennsylvania or someplace. But when you're living right on the edge of Highland Park and you've got a lot of 18 to 26-year-olds who are students at SMU, they are dressing fit to kill every single Sunday morning. And for it wasn't a distraction to me, but it was a distraction to him. Some of this is a little bit culturally related. But the principle is that it's supposed to be appropriate to the occasion, modest and discreet. Now, sometimes I've heard some rather conservative believers, because we all have our context of what we've seen, but you haven't been to some of these mega churches where anything goes and you see a midriff that's, six inches across with tattoos across the belly and the back and down the uh, neckline and everything. And yet that's, that I've been told that is not only not uncommon, it's more common than not. And people have no sense of propriety whatsoever. Uh, the way they dress, especially young, young men and women in their late teens or twenties. I'm not saying you don't have to wear a coat and tie, but it just needs to be appropriate. They can be jeans, but hopefully they're clean jeans. And if you're wearing a T-shirt, then it's a clean T-shirt. 
Schreiner makes the comment in his book, in the book, uh, The Role of Women in the Church, which is an outstanding book. It's gone through three editions. Last year, for about eight months, we went through page by page of the work of these men. There's about eight chapters, and each chapter is written by a different scholar. And it, it, it is, and it's every chapter has to do with some aspect of First Timothy two eight through two fifteen, every one of them, and it's it's painstaking, and we it it, it would take us sometimes a month to go, just go through one chapter. And analyzing the exegesis and everything, they just do a great job, and it's a model. It's about 250-page book, but it is a model of how a passage should be handled in terms of historical background and cultural background, uh, how to do key word studies, how to, do the, how to understand the syntax and grammar of a passage, and how to put it all together in terms of interpretation. And then in each book, they've, in each edition, they've done something different, and they've had different panels. One panel was all pastors' wives, and so they talked about roles of women in the church and asked them specific questions. In the third edition, they had, I can't remember what the first edition had, I've got all three of them, um, but in the last edition, they, they took different women who are in ministry, not pastors, but in ministry, and asked them, they had men and women, and asked them specific questions. And I was pleased to see that Rosaria Butterfield was one of them because of her, her background coming out of the whole hyper-feminist, lesbian, liberal environment. And uh, from her perspective and describing that, just a, a, lots of insight there. But in, in his chapter on the interpretation of First Timothy 2, 9 through 15, Schreiner writes, furthermore, his, meaning Paul's reaction to women imitating the latest hairstyles, because that, that's what he's saying here. What's going on here in the Roman culture is this idea of uh, braiding gold and silver and jewelry into the hair, which was extremely ostentatious, showing off a lot of wealth, had just come into practice in the previous uh, five or ten years. Things didn't move as fast in terms of fashion then as it does now. And so he says, furthermore, his reaction to women imitating the latest hairstyles should not shock us, since it was quite a new trend, really begun only a decade or so earlier, and since it carried connotations of both imperial luxury, because it was started by the wife of one of the Caesars, uh, of imperial luxury and the infamous licentiousness of women like Messalina and Papea. Today, it's the equivalent of warning Christians away from imitating styles set by promiscuous pop singers or actresses. How one dresses can often convey rebellious or ungodly messages, whether intended or not. I thought that was a good way of, of explaining this. Well, we're out of time, and I don't want to start into the next section in verses 11 and 12 until we can cover all of that to the end in one uh, one session. So that will be what I do in a couple of weeks, two or three weeks when I am back. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be together this evening, to focus upon your word, to be reminded that you do have uh, guidelines that are for men and women in order to realize their their spiritual maturity 
and to be more effective in the ministry that you have designed for each of us. We pray that we might have the humility to transform ourselves from a human viewpoint, understanding that has been informed too much by rebellious culture, and to be have our thinking along the lines of Scripture. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.